Missouri blues are getting me down. Oh, escape those dreary 20th century blues. Oh, Welcome to the second episode in the series, Talking Modernism, the podcast about the 1920s and 30s and how our grandparents and great-grandparents changed the world. I'm your host, Michael Hauptman. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the Frankfurt Kitchen and how in Frankfurt in 1926, the remarkable Greta Schutlodzki, the right person in the right place at the right time, created the Frankfurt Kitchen, the first mass-produced fitted kitchen, a masterpiece of modernist design. Some, perhaps most listeners, will never have heard of the Frankfurt Kitchen, so this podcast will be a wonderful revelation. But some of you may be familiar with this icon of modernist design. How iconic is it? There are Frankfurt kitchens in the collections of at least 10 major museums, including New York's Museum of Modern Art and London's Victoria and Albert Museum. In 2020, there was a rather wonderful eight-minute interpretive dance piece called Kitchen Dance set in a Frankfurt kitchen. Of course, I've provided a link to the video on the podcast website. And in 2008, the pop singer Robert Rotifer wrote a song called The Frankfurt Kitchen dedicated to, yes, you guessed it, The Frankfurt Kitchen. There's a link to that on the website too. And if you're a fan of Rotifer's work, heard the song and asked yourself, that Frankfurt Kitchen thing sounds interesting. I wonder if there's a podcast that talks about it. Well, let me extend a special welcome to you. And what exactly was this kitchen that has inspired dance and song? It was a small, low-cost kitchen that was installed in approximately 12,000 homes, built by the Frankfurt Municipal Building Authority in the four years between 1926 and 1930. The kitchen was available in three sizes, but the smallest was by far the most common version. And small it was, and narrow, measuring 1.9 by 3.4 metres, that's 6.2 by 11.2 feet, barely 6 metres square. The entrance was at the bottom of the rectangular plan, opposite a window. On the left was a stove, typically gas, sometimes electric, next to another sliding door connecting the kitchen to the living dining room. On the right wall was a bank of cabinets and a concrete sink. In front of the window, a workbench. This small kitchen revolutionised kitchen design and was the inspiration for features that are standard in the kitchens that we have in our home today. The issue of good kitchen design was a focus of much attention at the start of the modernist period. In the 1800s, there existed two sorts of kitchens. A small proportion of affluent houses had a space far away at the back of the house, large enough to hold the sometimes multitudes of servants who prepared the meals. But for most people, especially in the crowded cities that sprung up in the Industrial Revolution, their dwellings didn't have a separate kitchen at all. Instead, meals were prepared in the main living room, which, if they were lucky, had a sink. Certainly there were no fitted cupboards, Indeed, the phrase, everything but the kitchen sink, which dates from the 1900s, reflects the fact 
that the only immovable fixtures in a home at the time were the sink, the stove and the door handles. Imagine the tedious effort in preparing a meal in such a space. No benches, no drying racks, storage a jumble of mismatched cupboards and cabinets, perhaps if you were lucky, some hanging shelves that your husband had knocked up. From the mid-1800s in particular, people began to seriously consider the reform of kitchen design to find a new, better conception of the kitchen. And this arose out of two aspects of modernism, namely scientific management and domestic science. Scientific management and the changing status of women. What was scientific management? Scientific management was one of the first systematic attempts at analysing an industrial process to make that process more efficient. The key element of scientific management were what were called time and motion studies, where a process was carefully studied and broken down to its component steps and each step timed. And this identified opportunities to make that process faster. The person who did most to develop and spread scientific management was an American, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Indeed, scientific management is often called Taylorism. Initially a clerk at a Pennsylvania steel plant, he then became foreman and later qualified as an engineer. In the 1890s, Taylor refined his ideas, left his employer and became one of the world's first management consultants. In 1911, he published his ideas in a very influential paper, The Principles of Scientific Management. Now, even if many of its ideas have since been discredited, scientific management, or Taylorism, was the genesis of management theory that is taught in business schools today. Scientific management also held that it was possible to identify how much a good or service should cost if it was stripped of all the inefficiencies in its production. This concept was picked up by the US government's Supreme Court at the time. Justice Louis Brandeis, later Federal Attorney General, was involved in approving price increases for regulated industries such as steelworks and the railroads. Brandeis used the new field of scientific management to argue that rather than increase prices to maintain profits, industries instead should root out the production inefficiencies identified in the analysis and thereby reduce costs to maintain profits. The publicity given to these court battles between the Interstate Commerce Commission and industry helped boost and spread the new gospel of scientific management. Whilst Frederick Taylor was seeking to reduce waste and inefficiency in business, another group of innovators was looking to do something similar with housework, especially kitchen work, under what was known in the States as domestic science or home economics. One of the earlier texts on home economics, A Treatise on Domestic Economy, was published in 1843 by the pioneering feminist Catherine Beecher. Catherine came from a famous abolitionist family and was sister to Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin. A treatise on domestic economy 
contained several plans for ideal kitchen layout and considered for the first time the ergonomics of the kitchen, with design addressing aspects such as lighting, ample workspace, regular shelving, dedicated storage for various food items, and separate areas for food preparation and actual cooking. Catherine Beecher was a strong advocate of women's education and in 1823 opened with her sister Harriet a college for women, the Hartford Female Seminary. In those days, a woman's career prospects were largely limited to the home and Catherine's aim in making cooking and housekeeping more efficient was to make practical improvements in the lives of the largest possible number of women. And as opportunities for women slowly began to widen, the field of domestic science attracted the attention of many talented women. And this was because they were denied opportunities to work in pretty well any other field of science. In the US, the Morrill Act, and that's Morrill spelt M-O-R-I-L-L, -L, not M-O-R-R-A-L, the Morrill Act of 1862, encouraged states to open up college education to women. And where could these newly educated women work? The case of chemist Ellen Swallow Richards was typical. Richards was the first female student accepted into the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, in 1870, and later she became its first female instructor. But lacking opportunities to work in any other field, she established a domestic science laboratory for research into sanitation nutrition, fields which at the time were seen as suitably feminine. The work of these pioneering women in domestic science is largely forgotten today, but the innovations they introduced have become part of everyday life. Food groups, the definition of the poverty level, clothes labelling and consumer protection movements, all these came from the domestic science movement. There's an excellent book on the subject published just this year, The Secret of Home Economics, and I've included a link on the podcast's website. The two sciences of domestic science and scientific management came together in the United States at the beginning of the 1900s. Domestic science in the United States was very active at the turn of the 20th century, with the first national conference held in 1899 at Lake Placid. And at the same time, there was a huge interest in scientific management with what some have dubbed an efficiency craze from 1910 to 1920. Two innovators in particular applied scientific management methods to domestic science, especially the use of time and motion studies. The first was Lillian Gilbreth. She was married to a very influential scientific management specialist called Frank Gilbreth, and the two of them had a consulting business together. They also had a family of 11 children, and Lillian applied the principles of scientific management to pretty well every aspect of her household, as depicted in a, a rather fun movie from 1950 based on her biography called Cheaper by the Dozen, with Myrna Loy in the role of Lillian Gilbreth. This carefully planned efficiency allowed Lillian to juggle domestic life and her professional work, especially after her husband died quite young. 
With her husband's death, her professional work focused more and more on kitchen design, working for gas and electricity companies. In particular, Gilbreth invented the concept of the work triangle, still a staple of domestic kitchen design today, where the fridge, stove and sink are all arranged within 1.2 and 2.7 metres of each other. She's also credited with inventing wall light switches, the pedal bin, and shelves on the inside of refrigerator doors. A contemporary of Lillian Gilbreth and fellow domestic scientist was Christine Frederick. She was introduced to scientific management by her husband, a New York advertising executive who was fascinated by this new discipline. Christine Frederick was similarly smitten and in 1912 established a test kitchen at their home, grandly titled the Applecroft Home Experiment Station, where she claimed to have tested over 1,800 different uh, household tools and appliances. We can thank Frederick for simple innovations in the kitchen, such as constant height workbenches. In 1918, she published a book called The New Housekeeping, Efficiency Studies in Home Management. It was a very influential book and was translated into German in 1921, where it was eventually read by Greta Schutlodzki. Our hero has finally appeared on the scene and the stage was now set for the creation of the Frankfurt Kitchen. Greta Schutlodzki and Red Vienna. Greta Schutlodzki was one of those larger-than-life characters that the modernist period seemed to generate in great numbers. Born Margaret Lodzki in Vienna in 1897, she was a child of the new century and also a poster child for modernism, embodying several of its themes during her long life. In 1916, she was fortunate to be one of the first women to study architecture at the Vienna School of Arts and Crafts, nowadays known as the University of Applied Arts. And this was partly because of uh, the endorsement of a friend of her mother, the famous artist Gustav Klimt. Lodzki was also a firmly committed communist. Whilst at university, she developed strong social conscience, especially after one of her professors encouraged her to spend time investigating the housing problems of the city's working class. This developed into a lifelong commitment to communism that survived even the fall of the Berlin Wall. She travelled to the Soviet Union in 1930 as part of a work brigade of German architects led by the architect Ernst May, who we'll hear more about shortly. And she stayed on even after her work brigade colleagues became disillusioned with the reality of life under Stalin and Soviet communism and returned to Germany. Indeed, she was such an ardent communist that late in 1940, she left the safety of Turkey where she was living at the time and returned to wartime Nazi Vienna in order to join a communist spy ring there. Unfortunately, she was soon caught by the Gestapo. Two of her co-conspirators were executed and she spent the remainder of the war in a Nazi prison. She stayed in Austria after the war, but as an avowed communist, work opportunities there were limited. So she tended to work in the communist sphere in places like China, 
Cuba and Vietnam. She lived to almost 103, fittingly dying in the year 2000 at the end of the 20th century. She lived long enough for her achievements to be reappraised and acknowledged in her home country, and in 1992 was awarded the Austrian Decoration for Arts and Science, plus another award acknowledging her brave work for the resistance. Sprightly to the end, at the age of 97, she was part of an action to sue controversial right-wing Austrian politician Jörg Haider for describing concentration camps as punishment camps, implying somehow that the, the inmates had done something wrong. But all this lay in the future. In 1921, she graduated from university, having already demonstrated her ability by winning a number of prizes for her designs for public housing. And Vienna in the early 1920s was a wonderful place for a brilliant young architect with a social conscience to learn their craft. Similar to Germany, Austria suffered severe disruption after World War I, the economy in tatters, and the city of Vienna swollen to bursting with ex-soldiers and displaced people from the former Austria-Hungarian Empire. Living today in our relatively affluent times, it's easy to forget how bad were living standards for the majority of people back in the day. Here's an extract from a survey of English housing completed in 1933. At one and a half to a room, the kitchen counting as a room, there are six people in this house, divided for sleeping purposes thus. Main bedroom, husband, wife and child. Second bedroom, two girls. Parlour, son. Accommodation which necessitates five people sleeping in two small bedrooms and one person in the parlour is by every civilised standard odious. Nevertheless, today in England, this is a standard of perfection. Of the 11.5 million people dealt with in our survey, one in four live in conditions of overcrowding, besides which this is luxury. If one adds the presence of vermin, the bug, the beetle, the rat, the all-pervasive slum smell, and the absence in thousands of cases of bathrooms and water closets and even water taps, one arrives at some idea of the living conditions of a quarter of the population as dealt with here. Now, when this was written, Britain had on average one of the highest standards of living in the world. You can imagine what the situation must have been like in a city like Vienna. With tenements crammed and tens of thousands of people living in the city's parks, diseases like tuberculosis and the Spanish flu were rife. It became imperative to provide more housing, but with the economy on its knees, Austria had hyperinflation until 1924, private investment was at a standstill. So the Viennese city government stepped into the breach and created a huge program of building public housing, the first of its kind in the world. In the nine years between 1925 and 1934, the city built more than 60,000 apartments, as well as many cottages, providing housing for 200,000 people. Vienna at the time had a socialist government the Social Democratic Workers' Party of Austria, known as SDAP. So socialist, in fact, Vienna at the time was known as 
Red Vienna. The SDAP ruled until a fascist national government banned them in 1933. Now, being socialist, they wanted to ensure that the new buildings provided the best possible accommodation for their predominantly working-class tenants. But how could good accommodation be provided cheaply? Modernist architecture claimed to have the answer, and Vienna in the 1920s was home to some of the leading lights of the modernist architecture movement, such as Adolf Loss, who the city chose to head its housing office, or settlement office as it was called. Loss hired a number of forward-thinking architects into the settlement office, including the newly graduated Greta Lodzki. Functionalist architecture. Now, what exactly do I mean by modernist architecture? And why was it so suited to Vienna's socialist-sponsored public housing program? Modernist architecture is a very nebulous phrase, but in this context, it refers to the new type of architecture often called functionalism, or in German as Neu-Saschlichkeit or new objectivity, or even new sobriety. Functionalism basically held that a building should be considered like a machine, and like a machine, it should be designed to best fulfil the requirements of the building's inhabitants. The emphasis was on satisfying requirements, not on covering the facade of the building with florid decorations, or making allegorical allusions to previous civilizations like ancient Rome or medieval Europe. And this marked a sharp break with Western decorative architecture traditions of the previous 300-odd years. This concept of functionalism united several different strands of architecture. Adolf Loss, who we met earlier as Schutlodsky's boss at, the, at Vienna's settlement office, published a seminal essay in 1913 titled Ornament is a Crime, which pretty well summed up functionalism in its title. The legendary Swiss architect Le Corbusier expressed similar ideas in his 1923 book Towards a New Architecture. And perhaps the best-known expression of functionalism came from the Bauhaus School. The Bauhaus School was a German design school that was founded in the aftermath of World War I in 1919 and operated until closed by the Nazis in 1933. Despite only operating for 14 years, it managed to establish such a strong brand around the world that for many people, Bauhaus is synonymous with modernist design. The Bauhaus operated under three different directors, all strong characters, and the methods and principles of the school changed with each new director. But certain principles remained throughout. One was a desire to provide well-designed, aesthetically pleasing buildings and products to the largest number of people via mass production. So the school placed at least as much emphasis on craft as well as art and established strong relationships with the industry, especially in its later years as the German economy began to recover from World War I. Here's how Mies van der Rohe, the last director of the Bauhaus, described the aims of the school. 
Look at your writing desk, this shabby writing desk. Do I like it? I would throw it out the window. This is what we at the Bauhaus want to do. We want to have good objects so we don't have to throw them out the window. Architecture, especially housing design, was an obsession of the Bauhaus, even though it didn't actually construct that many buildings in its 14 years of operation. It was much more prolific in industrial design, as well as textiles, photography, topography, and theatre set design. Good architecture was seen to have the power to solve much of the social problems facing the Western world, especially the poverty and inequalities caused by early-stage capitalism and the Industrial Revolution. This view of architecture as a key tool of social reform was common throughout the modernist world. Cabusier in his 1923 book had a whole chapter entitled Architectural Revolution where he wrote, It is the question of building which lies at the root of social unrest today. Greta Schutlobsky herself wrote of her time studying the Viennese slums as a student, I didn't yet know the great Heinrich Ziller quote, you can kill a person with an apartment just as well as with an axe. But I certainly felt it. The egalitarian aspirations of functionalist architecture made it particularly popular with socialist leftist governments like Vienna's SDAP. A fountain pen designed on functionalist principles would suit a rich capitalist and a worker alike. And as functional design emphasised industrial production rather than handcrafting, the products would be affordable by all. As well as satisfying social objectives, for the Bauhaus, architecture also held a central place for artistic reasons. They held that architecture satisfied the concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, a German word that very loosely translates as total work of art. And this means a work of art that brings together all other art forms in a transcendental whole that is much more than the sum of its parts. Brought into being by a brilliant hero creator who combines intuition and inspired personal vision with practical capabilities and abilities across many art forms so they could make their vision a reality. In the late 1800s, the operas of Richard Wagner, such as his famous Ring Cycle, were seen to embody the concept of Gesamtkunstwerk. But at the turn of the century, it was more architectural seen to be the new Gesamtkunstwerk, the Art Nouveau movement, or Jugendstil, or the secession style as German speakers referred to it, had buildings where the architect designed not just the building, but the furniture, the drapery, the door handles, and even the crockery and cutlery. My favourite example of this, and indeed probably my favourite house in the whole world, is Gaudi's hallucinatory Casa Ballo, built in Barcelona in 1904. And a tip if you're visiting Barcelona, the queues for the Casa Ballo are much shorter than for Gaudi's more famous Basilica de la Sangrada Familia. Modernism in general, and Bauhaus in particular, continue to place architecture as the pinnacle of the arts.
the Frankfurt Kitchen. Our story now shifts from Vienna to Frankfurt. Like Vienna, Frankfurt had a post-World War I housing crisis and like Vienna, it had a socialist city government under Mayor Ludwig Landmann and the German Democratic Party. And also like Vienna, it instituted a social housing program for the city's poor, this time under modernist architect and Frankfurt native Ernst May. May's program was called Neuss Frankfurt or, or New Frankfurt. And the name New Frankfurt gives a hint of how much it embraced modernist functional design. Indeed, the program developed its own functionalist sans-serif uh, typeface, Futura, still popular today, for its posters, magazines and newsletters. In the five years between 1925 and 1930, the new Frankfurt project built 12,000 apartments and terrace houses in what has been called one of the most remarkable city planning experiments in the 20th century. The apartments of the new Frankfurt project were low-rise, with plenty of space for parks and gardens and communal amenities like laundries and childcare creches. Construction costs were kept low by the use of prefabricated building elements made from reinforced concrete. And each of the 12,000 units were to have the world's first mass-produced fitted kitchen, bringing groundbreaking features to tenants at an affordable price. And to design what would become known as the Frankfurt Kitchen, Ernst May reached out to the brilliant young Gret Lohodsky, now aged 29, who was making a name for herself in rational housing design in Vienna. Schutlodsky's goal was to liberate women by creating as efficient a kitchen as possible so that wives, who were increasingly beginning to juggle work and home, could spend as little time in the kitchen as possible. She wrote in her memoirs, Women's struggle for economic independence and personal development meant that the rationalisation of housework was an absolute necessity. She employed the scientific management design techniques she'd read about in Christine Frederick's book, The New Housekeeping Efficiency Studies in Home Management. She conducted user interviews with housewives clubs known as House Fry Varian. And she conducted time and motion studies of people doing domestic cooking. She worked with industry to ensure that the design was cheap to manufacture. Apparently, she took inspiration uh, from the small but efficient kitchens in railway dining cars and also from the fitted kitchen in a Bauhaus exhibition house from 1923. The resulting design was a radical reimagining of the traditional working class kitchen. Rather than being part of the living room, it was moved into its own small space, carefully laid out for optimum efficiency. She found the shortest route from larder to worktop to cupboard to cutlery drawer to worktop to bin, as Robert Rodifer sings in his tribute song. She carefully designed pretty well every aspect of the kitchen, drawing on some of her experiences from the Vienna Settlement Office. The kitchen had a bank of 18 narrow removable aluminium drawers with pouring spouts for dry ingredients like flour and sugar. And these were built from machinery that in World War I had made ammunition casing. There was an electric light on a track so it could be moved where it was needed. Under the bench was a work stool on casters. 
The cutting bench was made from beech as this wood resisted staining and knife marks. The frames of the cupboards were made from steel for ease of manufacture and the wooden cupboard doors were painted blue in the belief that blue repelled flies. The kitchen had a tiled splashback. Rather than an expensive refrigerator, a low-level cupboard was vented from the outside to keep food cool. There was an ironing board hinged to the wall which could be lowered for use. There was a draining rack over the sink. Even the efficient disposal of rubbish was considered. The waste bin had its own cupboard that could be emptied from outside the kitchen in the hall. The Frankfurt kitchen had influence far beyond the new Frankfurt building program. The idea of a well-designed, cheap-to-manufacture fitted kitchen quickly took hold throughout the Western world. And the fact that it was designed by a woman architect caught the public imagination and generated a lot of publicity for the new kitchen. Ironically, the Frankfurt kitchen concept returned to Germany after World War II, but it was now known as the Swedish kitchen. And no doubt you made your breakfast this morning in a fitted kitchen with integrated bench tops, features and layout inspired by Schutlodsky's pioneering design. Now, the Frankfurt kitchen was by no means perfect. Users complained that the food containers were set too low within reach of grabby toddlers. And they also complained that the tiny kitchen only had room for one, with not even space enough for a child to lend a helping hand. But overall, it was a huge step forward compared with previous working class kitchens and a triumph of functional modernist design. Design as a solution to a problem. The Frankfurt kitchen was largely the fruit of the unique drive and genius of Greta Schutlotsky. But it was also a product of the revolution in design that was functionalism. Codified by schools like the Bauhaus, many of its principles have been carried forward to this day. Concepts like multidisciplinary approaches to design, the social aim to use design to improve the world, the favouring of radical new solutions and new technology, and the focus on practical experimentation. All these are staples of design theory as practised today by leading design studios like IDEO and leading design schools like Berkeley's D School, which both happen to be based in California. What has changed, though, is the nature of problems that designers are looking to solve. In the 1920s, Vienna and Frankfurt were faced with a problem of scarcity, trying to solve a severe housing shortage with very limited funds. Most of the apartments that Frank May built for the Noyce Frankfurt program were what were termed existence minimum or subsistence dwellings. 36 square metres, or sometimes even 30 square metres, and these had to house up to a family of four. The design question then was how to provide the maximum possible amenities for the lowest possible cost in the smallest amount of space. And whatever shortcomings the existence minimum apartments or the Frankfurt kitchen had, 
they were an undoubted improvement over the slum housing they replaced. Now, the world today is immeasurably more wealthy than in the 1920s and 30s. Most of the design questions faced by industry in the developed world are no longer questions of scarcity, but rather problems of satiety, of abundance. How to provide innovation to stimulate demand in saturated consumer markets? What new features can be crammed into an iPhone? How can a commercial website be best laid out in order to result in a sale? Similarly, with affluence and the maturing of industry, of industrialization, issues of efficiency aren't as pressing, hence the decline in fields like scientific management. As well as being wealthier, the world has become more cynical, or at least less naive than it was in the 1920s and 30s. In those heady days, impressed by innovations like the Frankfurt Kitchen, there was a widespread belief that clever designers, architects and other professionals, given enough resources, would be able to harness the steady stream of scientific and technological breakthroughs in order to solve any and all of society's problems, to create a world of tomorrow as an ultimate utopia. And the related concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work of art, suggested that the total design of society could have an artistic dimension as well, achieving both spiritual and material perfection. By the end of the 1960s, unfortunately, that promise had proven to be an illusion. Especially in the United States, where despite huge wealth and talent, and despite sustained social investment in the form of President Johnson's war on poverty, society seemed further away from perfection than ever. With poverty, drugs, and the unpopular war in Vietnam, just some of the issues consuming American society. Why had the modernist program failed? In 1973, two professors from the University of California, Berkeley, Horst Ritten and Melvin Weber, published a paper that offered an answer. Dilemmas in a general theory of planning. In that paper, they put forward the concept of wicked problems which basically said that some of the most pressing problems facing society cannot be easily defined or formulated, certainly not in a way that allows a simple solution to be found. They offered poverty as an example of a wicked problem. What causes poverty? Is it a problem with the overall economy not being stimulated enough? Is it a problem with skills training of certain groups of people? Is it a problem with incentives to work? The list goes on. Unable to identify the root cause, it's difficult to begin to design an effective solution. And the issue of problem formulation is only one of the challenges of a wicked problem. The paper listed 10. Here's another. Solutions to wicked problems aren't binary, true or false, solved or unsolved. But rather, did the solution make the problem better or worse? And here's another. Every wicked problem can be considered part of another problem. And what's more, they noted that wicked problems tend to become more common as societies mature and become more fragmented and different points of view abound. 
The concept of wicked problem is central to design today. Minimalist rather than maximalist, contemporary design seeks to find a series of simple, modest solutions to wicked problems, each new solution building incrementally on the success of the last. Global warming has been described as a wicked problem par excellence, and the world's efforts to drive a solution through a program of incremental agreements at the annual COP conferences is perhaps an example of how we design a solution to such problems today. And in the case of global warming, let's hope for all our sake that it proves successful. But let's let Greta Schutlodsky have the last word on the Frankfurt kitchen. When interviewed on her 100th birthday, she said, You'll be surprised that before I conceived the Frankfurt kitchen in 1926, I never cooked for myself. At home in Vienna, my mother cooked. In Frankfurt, I went to the Verst House, the restaurant pub. I designed the kitchen as an architect, not as a housewife. And finally, if I had known that people would talk about nothing else, I would have never designed that damn kitchen. And so we come to the end of the second podcast in our series. I hope you found it interesting. If you want to find out more about Greta Schutlotsky, the Frankfurt Kitchen, or anything else I've discussed in this episode, please visit the podcast website where you'll find a whole bunch of links. And join us next time when I'll be talking about Stravinsky's revolutionary ballet, The Rite of Spring, World War I, and how European culture changed over the 1920s and 30s. I look forward to speaking to you then. Thank you.